Hi friends, welcome. Welcome to another episode in our series, Resilience, the wartime incarceration of Japanese Americans. As the military sprung into action, executing new limitations on quote unquote enemy aliens, both before and after President Roosevelt's executive order 9066, Japanese Americans were forced to scramble. They didn't know the specifics of what was coming next, but they knew that everything was changing rapidly. The military flooded into West Coast cities. Curfews were enacted and enforced. Businesses forced to close indefinitely. Families were told to start packing up only what they could carry with them. I'm Sharon McMahon, and here's where it gets interesting. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. For some of us, one of our earliest exposures to the incarceration of Japanese Americans was when we read Farewell to Manzanar, a memoir written by Jean Wakatsuki. When Jean was seven, her family was forcibly removed from their home in Ocean Park, California, and held in Manzanar during the war. It's a book that's sometimes used as assigned reading in middle school and high school, And one of the early scenes has always stuck with me. The Wakatsuki family is sorting through their belongings, having been given 48 hours to pack up to be shuffled, along with dozens of other families in their neighborhood, to temporary accommodations. And from there, to an incarceration camp. Jean writes, the secondhand dealers had been prowling around for weeks like wolves, offering humiliating prices for goods and furniture they knew many of us would have to sell sooner or later. Mama had left all but her most valuable possessions in Ocean Park simply because she had nowhere to put them. She'd brought along her pottery, her silver, heirlooms like the kimonos Granny had brought from Japan, 
tea sets, lacquered tables, and one fine old set of china, blue and white porcelain, almost translucent. On the day we were leaving, Woody's car was so crammed with boxes and luggage and kids we had just run out of room. Mama had to sell this china. One of the dealers offered her $15 for it. She said it was a full setting for $12 and worth at least $200. He said $15 was his top price. Mama started to quiver. Her eyes blazed up at him. She had been packing all night and trying to calm down Granny, who didn't understand why we were moving again and what all the rush was about. Mama's nerves were shot, and now Navy Jeeps were patrolling the streets. She didn't say another word. She just glared at this man, all the rage and frustration channeled at him through her eyes. He watched for a moment and said he was sure he couldn't pay more than $17.50 for that china. She reached into the red velvet case, took out a dinner plate, and hurled it to the floor in front of his feet. Mama took out another dinner plate and hurled it at the floor, then another and another, never moving, never opening her mouth, just quivering and glaring at the retreating dealer with tears streaming down her cheeks. It's hard to imagine the stress and the anxiety and the fear that rippled through the Japanese-American community as they faced increasingly strict orders that limited their freedoms. The U.S. Treasury Department began to freeze the assets of any Issei who were born in Japan, and the Department of Justice rounded up and arrested almost 1,500 Japanese-American community and religious leaders. They were afraid that these men who held positions of influence would give commands to their followers to plan acts of sabotage against the United States. But neither the FBI nor the military, both government agencies that did extensive digging into the backgrounds of Japanese Americans, found any acts of conspiracy, espionage, or sabotage. Japanese Americans were citizens, and many were fiercely proud to be Americans. Jimmy Sakamoto wrote an editorial in the Japanese American Courier saying, This is our country. We were born and raised here, have made our homes here. We're ready to give our lives, if necessary, to defend the United States. About two weeks before President Roosevelt issued Executive Order 9066, the U.S. Army mapped out designated restricted areas. And any enemy alien inside the restricted area was required to observe a curfew and not travel more than five miles away from their homes. An enemy alien in this instance referred to all persons of Japanese, German, or Italian descent, but most of these restricted areas were racially targeted, like the little Tokyo neighborhood in Los Angeles. On March 29, 1942, under the authority of Roosevelt's executive order, General DeWitt issued his fourth public proclamation, which began the forced evacuation and detention of Japanese-American West Coast residents with a 48-hour notice. Only a week earlier, on March 21st, Congress had passed Public Law 503, which made violation of Executive Order 9066 a misdemeanor. Anyone who violated the order could be punished with up to a year in prison and a $5,000 fine. 
Majority of Japanese Americans on the West Coast began to comply immediately. Store owners were forced to sell their merchandise at incredibly low prices, and those financial losses meant that many were never able to fully recover in the years following their incarceration. One Nisei remembers people who were like vultures, swooped down on us going through our wares and belongings, offering us a fraction of their value. When we complained to them about the low price, they would respond by saying, you can't take it with you, so take it or leave it. Another says, it's difficult to describe the feeling of despair and humiliation experienced by all of us as we watch the Caucasians coming to lure over our possessions and offering such nominal amounts, knowing we had no recourse but to accept whatever they were offering because we didn't know what the future held for us. And yet Japanese-American merchants taped signs to their closed shop doors, thanking their customers for their patronage. One said, hope to be serving you in the near future. God be with you until we meet again. But like we saw in Farewell to Manzanar, while Japanese-Americans complied, even as they were taken advantage of, many showed small acts of bravery, resilience, and resistance. Japanese-American activist Ernest Iyama, who helped establish the Oakland chapter of the Japanese-American Citizen League, remembered how greatly farmers suffered during this time. He said, Most farmers borrow money at the beginning. They buy seed and they have to hire people. And then when they get the crop, they sell it and they pay off all their debts. These farmers, they planted their things, but they were evacuated before the crops came out. So they had to leave it. And some of them were so mad. I knew some lettuce farmers who poured kerosene on the lettuce and just burnt them because they were so mad and they didn't want to leave it for anybody. Let's hear from Professor Lorraine Benai to hear more about the reactions of Japanese Americans as they begin to leave their homes behind, unsure of their futures. It was a Japanese American community. It was a vulnerable community. The immigrants could not vote. They were not citizens. So there was no culture resistance. And secondly, how could they resist? They were confronted with military orders enforced at bayonet point. And so the other thing to keep in mind is that there was an organization called the Japanese American Citizens League at the time that was an organization that said it spoke for Japanese Americans on a national level. And it decided to take a stance of cooperation and compliance to show that Japanese Americans were loyal citizens and to not make waves about it. And so they encouraged Japanese Americans to go to show their loyalty. So that's one aspect of the compliance. The other aspect is you're being ordered to leave. The only thing you can think about is getting your children out, packing your things up. You know, I mean, the whole idea of protest was was not possible at the time. The other thing I would add to that is that there were no organizations protesting either. So you didn't even have organizations supporting Japanese Americans. So how could you resist? So as far as the people who did resist, there were a few people who decided not to comply with the military orders. There were three men. One was Minyasui. He was a 22-year-old lawyer in Portland, Oregon, who went out the day the curfew orders came down with a copy of the curfew order in his hand and walked the streets of Portland looking for someone to arrest him. When an officer found him, the officer told him to go home and 
run along and not make trouble. So Min turned himself in to create a test case against the curfew orders. Gordon Hirabayashi was a student at the University of Washington when he decided to test the curfew orders and he was arrested and convicted. And Fred Korematsu was a welder in Oakland, California, who defied the removal orders. And all three men took their cases up to the U.S. Supreme Court. So there were these challenges to the orders through the means of defying them and getting arrested. Even though many complied, it doesn't mean that there wasn't anger and resentment and depression and fear and all of those things that went along with it. So the myth of compliance hides so much of the actual experience. We hear from a lot of interesting people on this podcast, and I know that I am always hungry for more. And what if you could learn from the world's best all in one place? Guess what? You can. With Masterclass, you can learn from the best to become your best. Masterclass is the only streaming platform where you can learn and grow with over 200 of the world's best instructors. For just $10 a month, an annual membership with Masterclass gets you unlimited access to every instructor. And you can access Masterclass on your phone, your computer, your smart TV, even in audio modes. You can listen to it like a podcast. I know that when I watch Doris Kearns Goodwin, that first of all, I'm going to be getting fantastic information, that the production level is going to be incredible, and then I'm going to walk away feeling smarter and more informed than I was before. Right now, our listeners get an additional 15% off any annual membership at masterclass.com slash Sharon. That's 15% off at masterclass.com slash Sharon. Masterclass.com slash Sharon. We have all had embarrassing moments where something didn't smell quite right. And if you have any children or people in your lives who have stinky toes, stinky feet, and those stinky shoes pile up by the door of your house, and then when people come over, they're like, um, your house smells weird. There's a solution for that, and it is not necessarily spraying down your house with disinfectant. It is taking care of the smell at the source by using Lumi on places like the people in your house's stinky feet. It is a whole body deodorant. It is safe to use anywhere on your body. It was created by a doctor who saw firsthand how stinky feet and other body parts are often misdiagnosed as problems when in reality you could just use a product like Lumi and it would take care of the issue. It has been clinically proven to block odor all day and control odor for up to 72 hours. Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, a cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice like mini body wash and deodorant wipes, and free shipping. As a special offer for listeners, New customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with code SHARON at LumiDeodorant.com. That equates to over 40% off your starter pack when you visit LumiDeodorant.com and use code SHARON. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have stress in our life. 
Absolutely, it's unavoidable. It's just part of the human experience. But some of us have more than others and some of us handle it better than others. Some of us really keep it bottled up and it can start to affect us negatively. I would imagine at some point in your life, you can relate to this, right? And therapy is a safe space to be able to get some of these things off your chest. And that is why so many people find benefit in speaking to a qualified professional. If you're thinking about starting therapy for something like managing your stress, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Sharon today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Sharon. We'll hear more about the Supreme Court cases Professor Benai mentioned in another episode, but I do want to underline the important role the JACL played in relaying a message of compliance to their fellow Japanese Americans. Many families were in shock. They were afraid. Their neighbors threw rocks into their windows and looked at them with disgust. Military police patrolled their neighborhoods. They were not given much room for resistance. The JACL began to rally and encourage the community. They believed that their compliance would be seen as a sign of their loyalty to the United States and recognized that families and individuals needed someone to tell them that things would be okay. Mike Masaoka, who wrote the JACL's creed, gave a public interview saying, we are preparing our people to move out. We want them to go without bitterness, without rancor, and with the feeling that this can be their contribution to the defense of the United States. We seek to make our people look at this movement as sort of an adventure, such as our fathers and mothers undertook when they came to this country. Many Japanese Americans have since talked about the fact that Japanese culture itself kept many from resistance and complaints. The culture places great emphasis on the samurai spirit, which embodies a philosophy of tranquility and acceptance. When challenges or difficulties arise, many Japanese were taught endurance without complaint. A formerly incarcerated Japanese American later explained to a government panel, To the Japanese, complaining is like breaking a samurai code. Ever since we were small, we were drummed with shambo and gaman. The meaning of those two words is forbear, no matter what happens. So the majority of the Japanese Americans on the West Coast walked with dignity into the unknown, wearing a tag with a government-issued number and carrying only what they could fit into a suitcase. Here's Kimi Cunningham Grant again, reading from her book, Silver Like Dust. Kimi's grandmother was a teenager when her family was removed from their Los Angeles home. Obatin chuckles as she remembers something. What I recall being the most anxious about with the packing was the toiletries part. We thought about sanitary napkins and we were terrified by the prospect of running out. We bought hundreds of them. She and the two cousins went out and bought large pieces of canvas and then sewed them into giant sacks. They filled each one with sanitary napkins, stuffing it with as many thick white pads as they could. We didn't know if we'd be able to buy them where we went. We didn't know anything. 
she sighs. You just had to guess and try to prepare as best you could. She continues speaking about her grandmother's experience in leaving the city. Red Cross workers carried trays of coffee through the crowd, as if offering comfort in a natural disaster. Finally, buses with armed military police pulled up. Standing outside the bus, gripping their rifles and looking straight ahead, the police ordered everyone aboard. At this point, still not knowing where they were headed, hundreds of people filed into those buses, obedient, quiet. Nobody resisted, Obachan remembers. I think people had the mindset that this was what we could do to help. We loved America just like everyone else, and if this was the way we could serve our country, we were willing to do it. We saw it as our duty. As a caravan of buses drove through the city of Los Angeles that April day, people stopped to stare. Some pointed and a few yelled, You don't belong here, hollered a middle-aged man. Dirty chaps, shouted a young girl. This is what you deserved yelled a mother, holding her infant son to her chest. Even though my grandmother had always lived in, and was quite accustomed to, a country that resented her race, even though she had seen all the headlines and heard the radio reports with their accusations and assumptions, she had never felt so despised as she did riding through Los Angeles that April afternoon. She was ashamed to be Japanese. She was ashamed to be American. Let's return for a moment to John Iso, the young Nisei who, before the war broke out, had been a rising academic star from Los Angeles. His path took a different course than many West Coast Japanese Americans who were registered with numbers and sorted into groups to be taken to temporary incarceration centers. A few years after he graduated from Harvard Law School and established his own successful law practice, he was drafted into the U.S. Army. Even with his impressive education and career, Iso's first assignments were menial. He was an active duty private and spent much of his time doing vehicle maintenance. But soon, Iso's Japanese language talents were spotted by Colonel Weckerling, who had been tasked with hastily organizing a school that would train men and officers in Japanese language and military intelligence. It was the summer of 1941, and though the bombing of Pearl Harbor didn't happen until December, Japan's movements in the Pacific pointed to the inevitability of war. With a budget of $2,000, the Military Intelligence Surface Language School was established in San Francisco. John Iso became its chief instructor. At first, John wasn't convinced that the position was right for him, but he was moved to accept after Wackerling told him, John... Your country needs you. Listen, I know if you pick up any kind of beauty magazine or you follow an influencer, there's like a new skincare product every single day of the week. And it can be really difficult to know which ones to even try, like which one is worth your money. And if you're tired of cycling through ineffective skincare trends and overcomplicated routines, you might be excited to know that one of today's sponsors is OneSkin. Their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy. No complicated routines, just simple, scientifically validated solutions. The secret is OneSkin's proprietary OS1 peptide. 
It's the first ingredient proven to switch off the aging cells that cause lines, wrinkles, and thinning skin. I especially like the eye cream. It's not too thick where you feel like it's going to clog all your pores, but it goes on really, really nicely under makeup. For a limited time, you'll get an exclusive 15% off your first OneSkin purchase using the code SHARON when you check out at oneskin.co. That's O-N-E-S-K-I-N dot C-O. Try OneSkin and enjoy younger, healthier skin without all the extra steps. That's oneskin.co, code SHARON. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The school formally opened on November 1st, 1941, just a few short weeks before the outbreak of war in December. Once the forced removal of Japanese Americans from the West Coast to incarceration camps began, the language school was transferred from San Francisco to Fort Snelling in Minnesota and was placed directly under the watch of the Army's Military Intelligence Division. However, it was John as the director who was responsible for the development and implementation of the program, and at a time when distrust and racism against Japanese Americans was at an all-time high. He was under a lot of pressure to make sure that the school was a success. He rose to the challenge. Under his direction, the program rapidly expanded. After his first class graduated and deployed in May of 1942, the school was flooded with requests to train more specialists. As the war moved from months to years, ISO oversaw the entire operation. By the end of the war in 1945, the Military Intelligence Service Language School and its 150 instructors produced over 6,000 military intelligence specialists. General Charles Willoughby, 
who served as the chief of intelligence during the war, stated that the school's men shortened the war by two years and saved a million lives. As I mentioned in our last episode, before evacuees were moved to incarceration camps outside of Military Area 1, they were sent by bus or train to temporary assembly centers. There were 18 centers in total in cities like Portland, Oregon, Mayor, Arizona, Puyallup, Washington, and Sacramento, California. These centers were nothing more than fairgrounds or racetrack stables. The center in Portland was literally a set of stables on the Pacific International Livestock Exposition Fairgrounds. The military had fortified these places by adding high guard towers and searchlights and by placing barbed wire around the grounds. Guards stood around the entrance and the perimeter. An observer was sent to write a report on one of the temporary camps for the government, and the report read, The guards have been instructed to shoot anyone who attempts to leave the center without a permit and who refuses to halt when ordered to do so. The guards are armed with guns that are effective at a range of up to 500 yards. At the beginning, the incarcerated Japanese Americans had been told that they would only be held at these temporary camps for a few days. But those days stretched on, turning into weeks, and in many cases, months. It took the military time to build the long-term incarceration camps, and most were not ready until the late summer and fall of 1942. This meant that people continued to be held in the roughest of conditions, sleeping on cots or mattresses, in horse and cattle stalls that had only recently been evacuated by animals. Lines for meals would sometimes take three hours to wait through, and people were fed hash, beans, and hot dogs, a far cry from the diet of fresh food that many Japanese Americans had been eating before they were removed from their homes. Even more humiliating than sleeping in horse stalls and waiting in line with a tin plate for a serving of beans was the lack of privacy when showering and using the bathroom. The showers were cold and communal, and there were often no toilets in the temporary incarceration centers. People were forced to use latrine ditches that were dug into the ground. Many women avoided relieving themselves during the day and resorted to the cover of night in order to give themselves some semblance of privacy. On weekends, one Nisei remembered, white people would come and look at us from the outside as if we were people in the zoo. By the time the Japanese Americans were told they were finally leaving the temporary camps, many felt relief. They didn't know exactly what they'd find in the long-term incarceration camps that awaited them, but they hoped that they would be larger, better-run centers where they could start to feel human again. And while the incarceration camps that awaited them were, in some ways, larger and less crude than the temporary ones they were leaving, the hopeful Japanese Americans were placed on buses that set off for some of the harshest and most desolate land in America. Thanks for being here today, friends. I will see you next time. Thank you so much for listening to Here's Where It Gets Interesting. And I'm wondering if you could do me a quick favor. If you enjoyed this episode, would you consider leaving us a rating or a review? 
or sharing a link to it on your social media. All of those things help podcasters out so much. Here's where it gets interesting is written and researched by executive producer, Heather Jackson. Our audio engineer is Jenny Snyder and it's hosted by me, Sharon McMahon. See you again soon.